consider that as a sign that you did something extra to get there, which means you do belong there. You're the person who worked hardest to get there. And so as a result, like use anytime you feel that feeling of oh, maybe I'm not supposed to be here, rather than looking at looking at that as like a um I don't fit in, I'm less good, you know, maybe reframe that as maybe I'm not good, maybe I'm great. Thrive friends, this is your host, Dr. Solomon. How to develop mental tactics to minimize unconscious bias and how to embrace diversity and inclusion. Today, I'm joined by an expert, a truly special guest, and a professional colleague of mine who will help us answer this tough question. And before I mention her name, I'll just share a few of her numerous accomplishments. She has been selected as one of the 50 emerging best management thinkers in the world in 2020 for her work on inclusion and diversity. Her book, Inclusify, The Power of Uniqueness and Belonging to Build Innovative Teams, was ranked as number five on the Wall Street Journal bestsellers in June 2020. She's a regular contributor to Bloomberg, Forbes, and Harvard Business Review. And on the side, she is just an associate professor at University of Colorado at Boulder. Stephanie Johnson, welcome on Thrive. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for accepting the invitation. I'll start with a quote by John Locke. So difficult it is to show the various meanings and imperfections of words when we have nothing else but words to do it with. The words diversity and inclusion are among the most used, misused, and abused terms. How do you define diversity and inclusion in your work, and what is the definition in the entrepreneurial and academic fields? Oh, that's a great question. So to me, diversity is a number. Mm -hmm. um, it's counting how many women do we have as professors at the university, or how many women of color do we have in leadership ranks, or how many people of color, or how many LGBTQ+, or how many persons with disabilities. Um, and you should be able to quantify diversity. On the other hand, inclusion is really around how do those people experience the workplace? And so maybe it's more of a feeling, um, but it's, are you getting input? Are you giving voice? Are you hearing from the different voices around the table? Mm -hmm. And there's different ways to measure that for sure. Like you can, I, I measure it by looking at whether people feel like they can be their authentic selves mm -hmm. and whether they feel like they belong. So the uniqueness and belonging, um, but you can also infer inclusion from, you know, are you getting contributions from people? Are people uh, maybe getting promoted and entering leader development or leaving the organization at the same rates? If not, if you see differential um, turnover, for example, then you can infer that maybe individuals who you had, that was diversity, didn't feel included and therefore they left. Um, and I think in the academic literature, I think that the uniqueness and belonging um, framework that was really advanced by Lynn Shore and her colleagues um, from optimal distinctiveness theory applied to inclusion, I think is pretty well accepted uh, in the entrepreneurial world. You know, I don't know if people conflate diversity and inclusion as the same thing, or, you know, maybe... Um, if you have enough diversity, that's inclusion. You know, it's kind of how I think it's often conceptualized, but it's obviously not the case, right? It's 
actually giving equal voice to people is inclusion. And given this definition, it seems it is centered around gender and ethnicity and color of skin. Does it go beyond these territories? Absolutely. I mean, there's so many different dimensions on which we can show experimentally um, positively impact organizational outcomes and decision-making. So, you know, I mentioned ability or disability, um, sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, political affiliation, even, you know, in the VC world, um, research has shown that diversity of alma mater can positively impact investment decisions. Geographic diversity, where you're from in the United States or where you're from in the world, um, political orientation. I mean, I think it's really everything that there is difference around is diversity. But I think we focus on gender and race, ethnicity, color, uh, because of the historic inequalities that have really been associated with those. I think the same with LGBTQ plus, uh, an ability for sure. Like if, if there's an EEO law around it, I think it's something that um, we needed those laws to protect individuals who are experiencing bias. Um, if there's not an EEO law, it's not that it doesn't benefit you, it's just that maybe there's not those historic inequalities. And now that we have defined diversity and inclusion, let's move to the rewarding and challenging parts of having a diverse cohort of workers. It is not a secret that bringing people of different backgrounds to work in the same space brings its own set of both rewards and challenges. Based on literature and your own work and your expertise, what are the number one most rewarding and the number one most challenging aspect in a diverse work environment? Yeah, so I think the most rewarding part, I mean, for me, I think it's just more interesting to be around people who are different. So if you ask me just like my personal experience, I don't want to hang out with myself all the time, right? Like I enjoy working in an environment that is as diverse as our country is. And I think people are interesting. I think differences are interesting. I am a psychologist by training, so I guess that's not terribly surprising. Um, but if I'm business, I would say the biggest benefit is really around innovation and improved decision-making and ability to weather shocks in organizational systems um, when you have greater diversity. The challenges are conflict or is conflict both perceived and experienced. So when people make decisions in diverse groups, they feel like they're doing a worse job. Like, I feel like this is harder. We're not agreeing. This means we're probably not getting to the right decision. When in fact, the fact that we have conflict and we're not agreeing is the very thing that gets us to the right decision. But my experience is that it's not as easy and therefore I'm not, we must not be doing a good job. Um, and then also like the interpersonal conflict, like it's pretty easy to create a cohesive team of people who all share the same background and understanding and language, it's more challenging to create a team that feels really cohesive across difference. And that's really what Inclusify is about is how can team leaders capitalize on the differences that people bring, yet still recognize that it's important that we have a cohesive team of people who feel like they can fit together. On this point, Stephanie, I will talk about something that many would like to avoid and it usually comes across in one-to-one -one random chats as it might be the case for you and for many as well many would think that diversity would decrease the return on investment as it requires investment in time investment in resources 
to build a diverse team. What evidence is out there to show that the long-term rewards of a diverse environment outweigh the initial investment? It's a great question. And people push back on this a lot because there's many studies that are correlational in nature that show, you know, having a diverse board positively predicts stock prices or return on assets or um, company growth or, you know, even innovation is one of the outcomes, but they're really correlational studies. So it's hard to say that X is causing Y. But when we look at laboratory studies, we can show the same findings that having, you know, assembling teams of people who are different um, actually results in more positive, like in better decisions and outcome. And so I don't know if like, I, I should actually drop it into an ROI calculator and say like, this is, this is the return. But I feel like it really would depend on the effectiveness of the organization at managing diversity and inclusion. I mean, that's, that's why this is an issue because diversity should lead to better decision-making and outcomes based on our laboratory studies. And it doesn't always. And that's because if you have invested money in recruiting the best talent, recruiting women, women of color, people of color, you, you have to search farther and wider to find the best talent. Now you have the best talent, right? You drew your talent from 100% of the population. That means you've got better people. And then they leave because they come to an organization that's not inclusive. Well, that's terrible return on investment because turnover is expensive. And now you just get to go back and do it again. So it's the exact return would depend on when that talent that you bring into the organization, the best talent is, you know, we know from talent calculations is certainly worth the cost Mm -hmm. of selection and recruitment if they stay. So then it means, are you developing, are you onboarding? Are you socializing, providing mentoring for those folks that you brought in so that they stay with the organization and, you know, you're expecting high performance. So do you give them the opportunity to demonstrate that and give them their promotions and give them the, um, you know, the opportunity to really show why you hired them. And and we see so often that's not the case that you're investing a ton up front and then expecting it's just going to work out on the other end. It's really a, a huge organizational cost that it actually has less to do with diversity and inclusion than it does just leadership. And this is a wonderful segue to the next point, Stephanie. When we see the studies, at least some of them, that have been done about the training on diversity for employees, surprisingly, the outcome is disappointing. It does not really lead to true embracement of the idea of diversity. And people look at it as, oh, another chore I have to do on the HR boarding, and the same with safety and the same with other mandatory training. What's your take on that? Why the diversity training is not really doing what it's supposed to do? I mean, I think because as with all training, I don't know that diversity and inclusion or include, I don't know that it doesn't happen because people don't know what they're supposed to do. So training is really good at providing you skills and information for stuff you don't know. But does training increase your motivation? Does I don't, I don't know. And because this is a sensitive topic and because your diversity training is offered by people who maybe don't always have the specific knowledge of what research in this area shows, oftentimes diversity training can elicit backlash from people. You can make folks go to a mandatory diversity training and the diversity training focuses on how they're the problem. I don't know that that motivates behavior change. 
I think diversity training can be useful in conjunction with real organizational changes. So if you're going to change your recruitment and selection procedures or your mentoring programs, the training is useful at communicating why we're making structural changes. The training itself doesn't make structural changes. That's really the, up to the organization. And so, you know, I, I'm sure you're familiar with the studies that show that in fact, diversity training can hurt diversity outcomes. And I think that is, it can hurt when it's not paired with structural changes and when it's delivered in a non-evidence-based way. Um, so really, I think it's probably the data would say, you know, set goals, have accountability, evaluate people on their effectiveness around leadership, which means leadership of everyone, not just majority group members. But if you're not leading everyone, you're not leading effectively. And if there's accountability around that, people will pretty quickly learn how to do a more effective job. And then you can provide training for those leaders who maybe have gaps on how effectively they're leading. And then now they're really going to take that training seriously because there's accountability around it and they know they have to learn some skills. You suggest a change at the structural level. Absolutely. Structural changes are changes. You know, training is, I feel like oftentimes training is used as a box check. Like we want to look like we're doing something performative diversity. You know, we, we have an ERG, we did, you know, diverse slates. We have uh, unconscious bias training or privilege training or whatever. And those as ends in themselves are not changes. They're just boxes. Thank you for sharing this, Stephanie. And people watching or listening to this episode, if you are enjoying my conversation with Stephanie, please have a look at her website, Dr. Steph Johnson, S-T-E-F-J-O-H-N-S-O-N, Stephanie with F, not with P-H. And that's all one word. And have a look at the summary of her book and please like and share this episode so that other colleagues will benefit from her great insight about inclusion and diversity. Stephanie, as an authority in the field, what would you advise as three practices to a coworker or a leader in order to embrace diversity and inclusion, not only at the superficial level that you alluded to, but almost as a mindset? Yeah. Okay. So I think I would start with redesigning the way that we run meetings so that the goal of the meeting is to get information from everyone in the room. So thinking about this idea of inclusion, not just as having diversity around the table, but as getting information from each person. So setting up, how can you design a place where everyone's contributing? And maybe that means like letting people know what you're going to talk about in advance, get gathering their thoughts up front so they can submit it, put in a Google doc or something, and then curating a conversation where the goal isn't agreement. It's coming up with the best answer. So if you say, you know, based on this pre-information we all agreed on this. Now tell me why we shouldn't do that. And then for these are the areas where we didn't agree. Let's weigh the different perspectives and see where there's overlap and where there's difference. And so you're actually creating a cultural norm of the point is you want to hear from everyone and you want different perspectives. That's the goal. So that's one, I think. Um, two, you know, I think of amplification, trying to give a voice to everyone at that table, whether you're the person running the meeting who redesigned the meeting or whether you're just sitting in the meeting and you see someone else in the room who maybe isn't getting the airtime or they're spoken over or um, maybe their ideas are attributed to someone else in the room. As an observer in that context, as a person or an ally in the room, you can weigh in and speak up and say, you know, I don't think Dr. Steph was quite finished. Um, I really want to 
hear what you have to say. And I really want her to finish her thoughts. Or if my now, you know, great idea was attributed to someone else, you can say, yes, that's a great idea. And when Dr. Steph said it earlier, I thought it was a great idea then too. And so now that you're echoing it, I think it must be. Uh, And I think those things, like, even if you're not in a formal position of leadership, demonstrate leadership. And it's something that we can all do to help back lead that improved discussion. So you do get all the ideas out on the table and some people aren't just steamrolled because um, only 35% of people report feeling really comfortable contributing during meetings. That means most of us are sitting there feeling uncomfortable. And so if you have that voice, I think you can do that. And then the third one I would say is really rethink the way you mentor and sponsor people. Are you, We are terribly unequal in how um, we mentor other people. Like I, uh, I think of myself, so I am a Mexican-American from Los Angeles. I'm a first-generation college student, and I'm a woman. And I have a mentee. She's a college student at University of Colorado. And she is literally a Mexican-American, first-generation female from Los Angeles. Like, how did I ever find her? And why do I like her so much? She reminds me of myself, right? And we all do this. It's natural, and it's totally inequitable if you look at who happens to hold positions of power, if we're all mentoring people who are like us and sponsoring, like who do I recommend for potential opportunities, scholarships, jobs? It's like these people that are in my, always at the front of my mind. She's always the front of my mind. And if we're all doing that, think of the inequity that unfolds over time. And so I would say, you know, maybe even if you don't have a direct report or someone you can mentor in your direct sphere of influence, there's people you can mentor across difference and sponsor. It's not just like, I'm going to give you advice. It's like, I'm going to give you opportunities because those are the things that really create gaps over time in aspiring to leadership roles. It's like, you have to have that person who's willing to go to bat for you and believe in you. And if that's always someone who looks just like you, then I guess it's not surprising that we see big gaps in leadership when it comes to race and gender. Unfortunately, our lovely conversation is coming to an end, and I usually ask every guest this question to inspire and motivate. Steph, all of us had setbacks, myself included, and we managed to go from striving to thriving. Would you mind sharing one of yours and how you dealt with it? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I have many to choose from. I don't even know how I will choose. Um, so, you know, I, I'll say this is, I don't know if it is qualifies as a setback. But for me, you know, I mentioned I'm a first generation college student. My parents didn't go to college. I grew up, I didn't have a lot of money. And I was just thinking about this because I went and I gave a talk at my undergraduate institution, which is Claremont McKenna College, a small liberal arts college in California. And someone asked me a question around this. So, you know, maybe that's why it's top of mind. But I, when I was trying to apply to colleges, I had to get a job to apply for college, to pay for those applications. I had to have a job to, to pay to buy myself an SAT test and AP tests. And like those inequalities really add up over time. And then I think when I got to this institution, which was like, a, it was a great place, it continued, right? Like I had to have a job to pay for my books and I had to pay for my applications to graduate school because I went to graduate school right after undergrad. And so I feel like, you know, the question of how you deal with, I don't know that I dealt with this great, like, for sure. But it definitely showed, like it informed me in a way that this is happening. And so now I am a college professor and I see the same exact thing in my students. 
And I try so hard to communicate to them that that inequality, that they're working harder to end up in the same place as other people should actually be a sign to them of their greatness, right? And if they're like, well, you know, I'm not doing as well. I don't know that I should be here. I, you know, maybe I didn't go to as good a a high school or as good an undergrad as some of the other students here. But it's like, but you got here while doing all of these other things. That means you have resilience and grit and obviously this innate talent that you're like, you're working really hard and that's going to carry you through. And so maybe the, the thing to take away is even when you, when you feel like you're in a space, you don't belong, like I, I don't belong here. I don't fit in. Consider that as a sign that you did something extra to get there, which means you do belong there. You're the person who worked hardest to get there. And so as a result, like use anytime you feel that feeling of oh, maybe I'm not supposed to be here rather than looking at, looking at that as like a, um, I don't fit in. I'm less good. You know, maybe reframe that as maybe I'm not good. Maybe I'm great. And that's how, that's why I'm here. I love this part. Maybe I'm not Mm. good. You're great. great. (laughs) Now I never personally thought that about myself. Okay. So uh, (laughs) that's why I'm hoping other people can view the world in that way. Cause I just viewed it as like, oh my God, someone's going to find out that I'm not supposed to be here. (laughs) Which is not surprising given that minority will have higher imposture syndrome because they had to do double or triple the work to reach the same level. And you might think, oh, maybe because I'm not smart enough. But it's the opposite, right? Like think of how smart you had to be to get here ahead of everyone else. It's amazing. What would you advise someone who is in the imposter syndrome and they tell you, well, I can't think of myself as great? Yeah. I mean, that that is a, a very tough question. And I really try to go with my students and I give them this analogy. And it's something I got from um, Dolly Chug's book on Be the Person You're Meant to Be. It's a great book. And she talks about these headwinds and tailwinds. Like if you're flying from Los Angeles to New York, um, it takes four hours. And if you fly from New York to Los Angeles, in four hours, you're in Denver because of the headwinds. And so just think about the headwinds that you have or had that are slowing you down or might have, but you pushed through and you still got there to Los Angeles, even though Denver's great, you you can stay in Denver. But, and other people at the same time had tailwinds that were pushing them. You know, maybe it was tutors or, um, you know, they didn't have to pay for stuff. Like I, I think of a lot of students who, take these internships. Like I, when I was in college, I interned at the Getty House Foundation, the official residence of the mayor of Los Angeles. So I got to meet all of these great people. It was an unpaid internship because those often internships don't have pay because you don't have to pay people to do that. Anyone would do that. Um, But at my college, they had this uh, folks donated money to pay students to do these internships who were, wouldn't otherwise be paid and couldn't afford to do it. So when you look at your resume, like consider those differences. Like, were you having to pay the bills? And that's why your maybe your resume doesn't look as good to you, but put in those lines on the resume of why those things are more meaningful because of the headwinds. And I don't know. And then if it just doesn't, if it's not working for you, then send me an email. We'll have a conversation. Because I think it, sometimes it just takes someone telling you over and over again and helping you see it. So you can see it in yourself and 
once you see it, then you can not see it. Exactly. Now, anything you would like to share with the audience that you have not shared on any other podcast or show? Oh, oh, that's like such a great question. You know, okay, so I'll share one other thing. Um, I'll say, you know, you were just, you asked about um, overcoming adversity and stuff like that. And I'll, you know, I think the other idea that I had in my mind that I couldn't decide what to share, what um, was, or career setbacks was, um, for me, I really had to balance work and family and that sometimes created setbacks. Um, and I think I, I see a lot of young women, even today, like in my, my students who are like, well, I want to have a family. And I don't know that like this high powered career, not that professoring is a high powered career, but whatever they're viewing is going to make room for family. And I remember, you know, reading Lean In, Cheryl Sandberg's book that said, you know, don't opt out before you're actually at the point of having the kids and stuff like go for the, go for it. And then not everyone does have kids. So, you know, why plan your whole life around something that may or may not happen? Just live your life. And, and then if you choose to have career setbacks, or if you choose having a family and leaving your career or whatever, those are all choices that you can make. And I'll say like, there's certainly been choices and this is something like I probably don't share just because it, it doesn't really even make me, I don't hardly ever think about it. Um, like there's gaps on my Vita. They're called Katie and Kyle. They're my kids, right? Like, and, and I couldn't care less. Like in the grand scheme of things, success in life is about so much more than your salary and your job title or, you know, whatever metrics of success. It's like, how have you impact, positively impacted the world? How have you created happiness and a path for yourself um, where you try to do something good? And I, if you look at it in that big way, I don't think there are career setbacks. They're all like life's steps forward to create some bigger picture um, that you're just kind of like, kind of create as you go along. And I think that's like, a, just like an important perspective to think of, like, I could have other setbacks, I probably will going forward, you know, and it's, it's just all part of life's journey. It's the journey. What a pleasure to have you on Thrive, Steph. Well, thank you so much for having me. I love your questions. And I love your whole perspective of Thrive and that positivity around it. Thank you so much. Until we meet next time, keep safe, keep motivated, keep resilient, and see you in the next episode of Thrive. Thank you.